I would now like to introduce Robert J. Zimmer, President of the University of Chicago. Well, thank you, Carla, and uh, I do want to express on behalf of the University of Chicago uh, our specific thanks uh, to you, Carla, for your friendship and support. Uh, you've helped the collaboration between the Chicago Humanities Festival and the University of Chicago flourish, and we're all indebted to you for your efforts, so thank you. Now, it's a great pleasure to welcome all of you to Rockefeller Chapel this afternoon. Uh, it's likewise a pleasure, but also, of course, a great privilege for me to be able to welcome Professor Wangari Mathai to the University of Chicago. Professor Mathai's story is both dramatic and complex. As we all know, she is a woman of remarkable achievement. She is a biologist and was chair of the Department of Veterinary Anatomy at the University of Nairobi and a member of Parliament in Kenya. She's been a tireless actor and advocate for the conservation of the environment in Africa, a force for democratization, and an ongoing advocate for improving the lives and situation of women. And of course, the impact of her work has been widely recognized by the world community in her receiving numerous awards, including the Nobel Peace Prize in 2004. One of the features of her work that I have always found so striking was her ability to integrate, not only conceptually, but in action, the issues of conservation, democratization, and improvement of women's lives. Moreover, she did this in a way that simultaneously also integrated the very local level and the global level. From the simplicity of individuals and communities planting trees to the complexity of a major effort at reforestation of the continent, from the struggle to achieve a focused environmental goal to the complexity of changing a political system, from seeing individual lives to the examination of post-colonial structure and culture. Professor Mathai is extraordinary for her capacity to see and act simultaneously at the individual level and the global level. I think all of us realize that the problems that she has attacked are of fundamental importance to us all and that they are not simple. The issue of global environmental evolution and the related questions of energy production and its relationship to economic development are very complex. The struggle for democratization and related issues of human rights and decreasing violence have, of course, as we all know, proven very difficult. And the effort to improve the lives of women worldwide and break a repressive cycle remains an ongoing challenge. These are very daunting problems. But Professor Mathai has made fundamental contributions to these problems by her insight, persistence, determination, and skill, advancing the lives of individuals and addressing large global issues. We are all, every one of us, in her debt, and we are very pleased to have her here in Chicago this afternoon. Please welcome her. You are most kind, and I deeply appreciate. Please allow me to thank Kara Shira, President Robert Zimmer, Rola Washington, the Chicago Humanities Festival, University of Chicago, and indeed all the citizens of Chicago for the very warm welcome to this, what I would say, green city. You have a, a very beautiful city that I understand is particularly a concern for the mayor who believes in planting trees. Now, <clears throat> I know we do not have much time and we will have uh, an occasion for questions at the end, so very quickly I will try to share with you the message 
that the Norwegian Nobel Committee was trying to pass to the world when they gave the Nobel Peace Prize to me in the name of the environment. What the committee was trying to take to the world was a message that a time had arrived for us to focus on the environment and to see the linkage between the environment, governance, and peace. And they used the Green Belt Movement, which for over 30 years had been trying to pass that message, but at a very small scale. But it became clear to the committee that indeed this is a message that the world should appreciate and embrace. Because indeed when you look at the world in which we live, we have resources, but these resources are limited. And these resources will not only be used by us, but also by the future generations. So if we want to live in peace now, and indeed want our children to live in peace, it's very important for us to learn to manage resources that are limited. Therefore, we, manage them, we must manage them responsibly, accountably. The environmentalists like to use that word, sustainably, which sometimes people say they don't quite understand. But in order for us to be able to manage these resources responsibly and accountably, we need to be able to govern ourselves in a way that will allow us to do so. And the most acceptable or the most, uh, the system that allows that to happen is what we can call, for lack of a better word, democratic system. A system that respects the rule of law, a system that respects human rights, a system that is inclusive, that does not discriminate the minorities on the basis of whatever characteristics we may wish to pick, but which tries to be inclusive. And if we do so and promote equitable distribution of those resources, we will deliberately and consciously be trying to preempt the causes of conflict and thereby walk and work towards peace. If we don't do that, what happens is that those who feel excluded, those who feel exploited, sooner or later begin to seek their form of justice. And in seeking that justice, will sometimes approach it violently and in the process threaten the peace and security of others. So the committee was saying, therefore, that we need to rethink the concept of peace and security and embrace the way we manage our resources, the way we share them, and therefore the way we govern ourselves. Now for me, when I started, I wasn't thinking about that. That's almost where I landed. But in the beginning, I was just trying to meet the felt needs of some rural women who were preparing to go to Mexico in 1975. And you remember, some of you, that in 1975, the United Nations decided to organize the very first women's conference and invited all women from all over the world to meet in Mexico. And so in Kenya, as in many other places in the world, we were mobilizing. And as we mobilized, we brought all women together. And I came to that forum as a representative of the Kenya Association of University Women. So I was listening to the rural women. And one of the things that struck me was that the needs or the concerns that they had were actually concerns and problems that had come to them due to environmental degradation. Now, because I did biology, I guess it helped me to understand that what they were worried about are symptoms that have come 
due to environmental degradation. Also because I grew up in the countryside and some of the women came from the same countryside, I knew that the world they were living in was very different from the world I lived in as a child. And that world I have described in the book, for those of you who have read, very beautiful countryside. And so as I tried from that perspective, but also from other perspectives, to learn what was destroying the environment, I eventually realized that I needed to mobilize women. Now some people ask me, why women? <clears throat> and I say women, for my part of the country, women are the ones who deal with primary natural resources. They're the ones who deal with water, they fetch water. They're the ones who fetch firewood. They are also the ones who produce food quite often, even though the land belongs to the men. So it was much easier for me to talk to the women. Obviously, we were also within the National Council of Women. So we, we are all women. It was easier for me to talk to them. So when we started, we started with the women and we asked them to organize. But as we made them organize and inform them and empower them, we encountered the issue of governance. We learned that because we were organizing women and we were informing them and we were mobilizing them and we were not informing the people in power, we were suspected of organizing against those in power. And we were challenged. And that's when I realized that you cannot protect the environment unless you have a governance system that allows you to, which means we needed to get rid of the very dictatorial system that we had, a dictatorial system that said, for example, that we could not meet if we were, if we were more than nine. And I said, well, many families are more than nine. So how can you say we cannot meet? And so we challenged the system to be allowed to enjoy the basic freedoms, freedom of movement, freedom of association, freedom of information, freedom to organize. And that was eventually what brought us into direct conflict with the government. Eventually we did win, but after many, many years and a lot of struggles, but it did help us understand the linkage between environmental degradation and uh, governance. We realize that if you have a corrupt government, the those in power will tend to privatize public goods, whether those goods are open green spaces in the city or forested areas or just public land that is meant for the common good. And in our case, much of that was forested mountains. And unfortunately, these forested mountains were badly needed by the people because that's where water comes from. And these mountains also control rainfall patterns. And much of the country is, has an economy that is agricultural based and very dependent on rainfall. So the primary natural resources were very important to the livelihoods of the people. So if those in power were going to privatize these goods, these common goods, they would be undermining the livelihoods of the people. And so we challenged that. And it was very difficult because of corruption. Because people in power, if they are corrupt, they don't like being exposed. And, and in order for them not to be exposed, it is very important that they keep people ignorant and fearful. And that's a tool that people use when they are in power. You keep them fearful and uninformed because uninformed people also tend to be fearful. They are afraid of the unknown. They are afraid of those who are in power. So the Green Belt Movement established a program which we call Civic and Environmental Program. And that Civic and Environmental Program is an education program that shows people how they are governed, why they are governed that way, and what they can do 
to ensure that that governance does not undermine their livelihoods. And that was one of the programs that the government really didn't like because it empowers people, it informs people, and it removes fear. And once it removes fear, it begins to hold leaders accountable. Now, I don't know about you people, but in my part of the world, leaders don't like to be held accountable. <laughs> so the Green Belt Movement, as you can see, in the, I'm summarizing a program of about 30 years. But in those 30 years, we really didn't have a blueprint, but we knew what we were trying to achieve. And what we tried to do was keep working and keep trying and keep pushing uh, as we knew that what we needed was to see our resources better managed and to see the governance changed. We also recognized the issue of peace by observing that when there was drought, especially when there was drought among the pastoral communities, there was competition for resources and especially water and grazing ground. And people with livestock would move from their degraded areas or their drought-stricken areas to areas where there were better um, grasses and more water, areas where they could survive. Now, quite often, those areas would not be their areas. They would be moving into other people's lands, other people's grazing lands, sometimes other people's farms. And that brought conflict. And we saw that quite often, politicians take advantage of that. And they try to blame the people who have resources, are blamed, they become the victims because they are perceived to be the ones occupying areas which should be occupied by those who are drought-stricken or those who cannot access water. So we started educating people also to understand that when the environment is degraded or when resources become scarce, people will fight for the few resources that are still remaining. Now that is true whether it is at the local level or even when it is at the regional level or global level. And that is how we linked uh, all three uh, issues, sustainable management of resources, good governance, and peace. And I started using the, the three-legged the three African stool. And I would say that the three-legged African stool is cut from one block. It has three legs, but they are actually chiseled from that block. It has a seat which is chiseled from the same block. So the artist crafts that stool to create a balanced stool where one can sit and not fall over. And the issue here is those three pillars or those three legs represent those three pillars, what I would call pillars. The pillar of sustainable management of resources, the pillar of good governance, and the pillar of peace. And we argued that in a state, no matter how rich, no matter how poor, if it has those three pillars, firmly cultivated, nurtured, appreciated by citizens, protected by the state, you will have a stable state and the seat will be a great forum where development can take place. But if you have a situation where the stool has only one leg or even two legs and was still no legs, it is impossible to have stability and sooner or later you're going to have a crisis you're going to have a conflict, you're going to have a war, you are likely to have a failed state. And so we wanted to encourage states to embrace these three uh, pillars and to deliberately and consciously work on them so that we can deliberately and consciously work 
for peace. Now this is easier said than done. Of course, it's very easy for me to stand here and articulate all that. But what the Norwegian Nobel Committee was trying to say is that the time has come for us to do exactly that. To cultivate an understanding and a willingness to invest in making those three pillars strong in our societies. Because unless we do so, sooner or later we are going to have a war. And I would like to challenge you to look through the world and tell me one war that we are fighting today, whether it is at the local level or whether it is at the regional level or even at the global level, which doesn't have to do with control, access, control, and distribution of resources. I haven't come across any. If you know of any, I want to study it. <clears throat> Most wars that we fight are due to that. And unless we rethink our concept of peace and security, we shall only continue to be more insecure in the world if we continue to live the way we are living. And indeed, we have a world that is greatly threatened. The greatest threat today is global warming. And I'm sure many of us have seen the wonderful film by the former Vice President Argo, The Inconvenient Truth. And there we see graphically what is happening to our planet. Now this, beginning of this year, over 2,000 scientists, as you know, released a report that said that indeed human-induced activities are causing global warming and that we don't have much time. Now, we need to do something. We must mitigate. Now, it is not easy to stop living the kind of lifestyle that has produced the kind of greenhouse gases that are threatening our planet. After all, this has been going on for over 200 years since the Industrial Revolution. But unless we do something ourselves, who now are confronted with the facts, then indeed we are preparing to hand over that problem to our future generations. And I think that would be morally very irresponsible of us to hand over the, such a problem to our future generations. So it is, we ought to be challenged to move into action and do whatever we can to release the to ease the burden of global warming. For one, there are certain things we are trying to do in our part of the world. I recently became the goodwill ambassador of the Congo forest. Because as we know, one of our greatest friends on earth are the forests, the trees, any green vegetation, because that's what traps carbon dioxide. And if we can stop a lot of deforestation and protect the standing trees, even as we continue planting more trees, we will have a great, great friends in the form of trees that are constantly trapping that carbon dioxide. Now, although I'm the goodwill ambassador of the Congo forest, I'm also advocating and hoping that we shall remember not only the Amazon, which many of us are aware of, but also the forests in Southeast Asia. These three blocks of forest are called the three lands of the planet, and they are in danger. Because there are people in this world who fit the description of Mahatma Gandhi, who said there is, there is enough for everybody, every man on this planet, every man in need. There is enough to cover the need of every man on the planet. But there is not enough to cover the greed of every man on this planet. fight the greed. We need to appeal especially to companies that are logging, 
to remember that even though the problem is largely in the tropics where these forests are, when ice melts in the, at the poles, or when the earth warms up, it will not make much difference. It will not choose. And in our part of the world, we are telling them that if they continue deforesting and removing the vegetation from the land, because they think that they don't have as many cars as they have in America, and therefore they are not releasing as much greenhouse gases as is being released in developed countries. Scientists told us that even though those regions are not contributing much towards the problem, they will be the most negatively impacted by global warming. So down there I'm telling them, it won't matter, nature doesn't care. So you didn't create the problem too bad. You still get the impact, and especially the impact of warming. Already we are losing the snow and ice on Mount Kenya and Kilimanjaro. And those of you who have seen the, uh, the film, the Argos film, you know. You can see how the mountains were covered by ice and snow some 50, 60 years ago. And how today that ice and snow is literally in patches. So we need, we are already feeling the impact. The droughts are very much prolonged and very harsh. And last year in Kenya, we had a drought in the northeastern part of our country, and the countryside was littered with the skeletons of animals that could not escape. And those that escaped literally were driven into the Mount Kenya forest. So I don't know how many uh, animals can be driven into the Mount Kenya forest before the Mount Kenya forest is completely desertified. And already people who live near the Mount Kenya forest were saying, if your area is drought stricken, don't come and negatively impact on the Mount Kenya forest. And you see how conflict can very easily ensue. So we want to appeal to everybody to do whatever we can. And there are very many little things that we can do. But for me, I spend a lot of my time advocating for the planting of trees because that's easy, it's doable, and it, it really makes a difference. And that is why last year, with UNEM, uh, the Green Belt Movement, and ECRAF, the International uh, Center for Agroforestry, we launched the Global One Billion Trees campaign. And what we wanted was the whole world to join in and plant one billion trees. It's not going to make that much of a big difference to plant a billion trees, but we wanted to raise awareness and we wanted to call attention to the fact that our planet is literally threatened by global warming. And I have the privilege of uh, being, uh, of, of joining uh, His Serene Highness, the, prin the, uh, the Prince Albert of Monaco. Both of, both of us were asked by UNEP if we could be the patrons of that campaign. And I want to share with you that three months ago, we were informed that people all over the world have pledged one billion trees will be planted. to tell them that they must get down on their knees and plant them those trees. <laughs> and I'm hoping that, that by the end of the year we shall have one billion trees. And I also want to, to recognize the, uh, the support we have received from the British government uh, as part of the forest initiative. We have been raising that awareness that we need to protect the forest and we have been asking governments, especially among the G80 countries, to support the governments in these regions so that they can protect these forests and especially protect the standing forests. And the British government this year pledged $100 million 
for the Congo forest, which we are very, very grateful about. And we are, as I speak, we are in the process of creating a trust fund where that money will go, and that trust fund will be shared by the Right Honourable Paul Martin, the former Prime Minister of Canada, and myself. I don't know how I'm going to do all this. I need help. <laughs> but I'm very excited about that initiative and, uh, and the fact that the Right Honourable Paul Martin agreed to, to come on board. We were asked by the Prime Minister, the current Prime Minister of Britain, uh, Mr. Gordon Brown, to help push that initiative to make sure that we protect the Congo forest. And the, the governments in that region, there are 10 governments in that region, have agreed to work together. They have signed a treaty, and that treaty has now come into effect. They have promised that they will put on the table at least 40% of the budget that they have yet to do. And I'm waiting for them to show by action that they are truly committed. And we are hoping that we can demonstrate that what is important in this issue of climate change is not to blame each other, is not to have wishful thinking of what we could have done, but rather to work together with the governments, uh, NGOs, international organizations, so that we can truly work and make a difference in fighting climate change. In the meantime, uh, recently I went to Japan and I, we were talking about one way of fighting uh, climate change is, of course, to promote uh, a concept that I know is very well known in this part of the world, and that is the concept of reuse, reduce, recycle. And uh, in my part of the world, I, we are fighting the, the production and the use of very thin plastics which are thrown into the environment after being used only once. And those plastics are contributing to the, to, to the greenhouse gases, but more so they are contributing to, to menace in the environment. Those of you who have been to Kenya, you see them on trees, you see them on the road, you see them in the soil, you find them in stomachs of domestic animals. They have been a nuisance. And recently, our campaign bore fruit because the Kenya government decided that they, with effect from January, all thin plastics in Kenya of a certain gauge will not be produced and instead the companies are being asked to produce thicker forests which can be reused, reduced, so as to, re to be recycled so that we can reduce the amount of plastics that we are throwing into the environment. And in Japan, when I went there, I was very encouraged by their use of technology. In fact, I learned that in Japan, before they became so wealthy, they had a tradition where they, they would not tie gifts in, pap on, in paper. They used cloth, and this cloth was called froshiki. And they would tie this, the gift, give it to the, uh, whoever they were giving the gift, and the person receiving the gift was supposed to, pull, to give back the cloth so that you can tie another gift. And so when I went there and talked about reuse, reduce, recycle, they said that's exactly what traditionally Japanese used to do, but right now we feel a bit embarrassed because we are so wealthy. And I said, well, the truth of the matter is this planet is one. And even if you are so wealthy, you really need to remember that many of the wealth, much of the wealth that you have is coming from other parts of the world. And that wealth needs to be managed responsibly and accountably. Because we do need the forests in the Southeast Asia. And if that is where you are getting all these chopsticks from, can you imagine what would happen if you recycled the chopsticks like you used to do traditionally. So in fact, I have some good fun in Japan of some people who are now writing to me and telling me I'm recycling my chopsticks. <laughs> and, um, and I want to share with you uh, one thing that was, I know my time is over, 
But I, I want to share with you this concept also from Japan. I talked about Furoshiki, and when I visited the Minister for Environment, I told him about the need for the resources to be managed responsibly and accountably and not to be wasted. So he told me about this concept. She told me, this was a woman, Madame Koike. She told me about this concept in Japan called uh, Mutaina, which is a concept that was traditional that encouraged Japanese to not waste resources and to be grateful, almost a spiritual concept. Be grateful, be thankful, do not waste resources. And so when we, when we talked about it, she immediately introduced the concept and she asked some companies to start recycling plastics, especially because I was talking about the plastic. And I want to share with you a furoshiki that was made from uh, recycled plastic thanks to the initiative of this Madam um, Koike, uh, who is still a government minister, by the way, in Japan. And I guess only a woman could have seen this the way the, the Madam uh, Koike saw it. This, this piece of material is made from recycled plastic. It's very beautiful. And nobody would even imagine that it is from recycled plastic. And that's what we can do with technology. So it's not as if we need to reduce our quality of life, to manage the resources responsibly and accountably, and to use them responsibly, especially bearing in mind that we are leaving this planet to our children and their children, and that unless we do so, they shall be fighting wars over resources. So I'm really very impressed by Madame Koike. She's the, currently, I understand, with the changes in Japan, she's now the Minister for Defense. Good for her. I want to, we are here to promote a book. I forgot about that. Uh, but I want to read something very small uh, about the book uh, before we... we I, I conclude, and I want to say that um, uh, those of you who have read the book know, of course, that I eventually I come to America, and uh, to the United States of America, and I land in New York, and I go to Kansas, and I study in a small college called Mountain Scholastica College, run by the Benedictine Sisters, and that's how I acquired this Kansas accent. <laughs> Anybody from Kansas here? And, uh, and I just want to share with you my experience when we landed in New York. Uh, I say coming to New York was like landing on the moon. Fortunately, I was constantly in the company of my friend Agatha Wageshi, with whom I had studied at Century Chiris and Loreto Moon. These were the schools in Kenya. But both of us were to attend mountains St. Scholastica together. So together we figured that uh, we, we decided to figure out this strange city called New York and share our experiences. As we walked the busy streets of New York, we were lucky not to be knocked out since we, we spent most of the time staring up at the skyscrapers, which seemed to sway in the wind and touch the clouds. It was amazing. <clears throat> then there were the elevators. Now I had seen, I had been in an elevator in Nairobi when I had received instructions on how to get a visa for the United States of America. But that elevator went only to the fourth floor. In New York, I rode in elevators to the 20th and 30th floors at lightning speed. I was convinced my stomach and heart would not arrive at the same time as the rest of me. How relieved I was when I reached the ground floor again and got out. This was New York. Now, I, I'm not going to read much more than that, but uh, I just wanted, um, yeah, I, I guess, yeah, let me read something about the fact that I've never seen escalators before in my life. One of the things we had to do in New York 
was to go shopping, of course. This led to my first encounter with an escalator. My initial reaction was to think of the Irimo. Irimo is a dragon in my local language. So it looked like it reminded me of a dragon. Powerful and noisy, slithering between floors, coming from nowhere and returning to nowhere. Well, I thought, sizing up the escalator. Well, everybody else is stepping on it, so I would better do the same. While I made it safely to the next floor, one of my shoes didn't. <laughs> and I looked back, wondering how I would ever recover it. I had no idea that there was another escalator going down on the other side. Luckily, a good old New Yorker realized my predicament and brought my shoe to me with a smile on his face. I have never forgotten that man's generosity and his warm welcome to the magic city of New York. Neither have I forgotten that first encounter with a moving staircase. Even today, I'm a little circumspect when I go on an escalator. Now, everybody's getting ready for me. Sometimes people ask me, how do you keep, keep up? How do you remain focused despite all the uh, side, side shows that try to stop you? And I want, I, I want to share with you a little story that I usually tell. I had this story in Japan too told to me by a professor, Suji, and I liked that story because it's the story <clears throat> of a hummingbird. And I don't know how many of you have heard me tell the story of a hummingbird, but for the sake of those who have not heard me tell the story, it will take me a minute to tell the story of a hummingbird. And because all of you know about hummingbird, when I tell it in other parts of the world, I have to tell them what a hummingbird is because it's only found in North America, I understand. Other families are much bigger than the hummingbird in North America. But this, this particular forest, it was the American hummingbird that we are talking about. So there was this great fire that broke out in the forest. Huge fire, raging in every direction. And all the animals came out of the forest, scared, stiff, worried, feeling helpless. And they all stood by the edge of the forest completely feeling like there was nothing they could do about the fire. It was too big, it was raging too high, it would kill them, it would finish them. All they could do was watch. Except this little hummingbird. The hummingbird said, I'm going to do something about this fire. So the little bird flew as fast as it could to the nearest stream and picked one drop of water, flew back and put it on the raging fire. And he rushed back again and picked it, a drop of water and brought it and put it on the fire. And all the meantime, the, the other animals are watching and they are amazed that the hummingbird is trying to do what seemed to them impossible. And the little bird is just going up and down as often as it can, as fast as it can. Not paying attention to all the discouragement that is coming from some of these animals, some of them with the big beaks that could have brought much more water than the little beak of the hummingbird. And they were telling the hummingbird, there is nothing you can do about this fire. The fire is too big, you are too little, you have little wings, you have a little beak, and you have a little body. There is hardly anything you can do to this fire. Might as well come and join us. But the little bird won't hear of it. Just kept going up and down as fast as it could every time bringing a drop of water and putting it on the fire and every time hoping that that drop of water will make a difference and tired of the discouragement that was coming from the other animals what do you think you are what do you think you are doing the little bird without stopping said i'm doing the best i can and for me, that's the greatest thing because sometimes you feel like you are so little, so helpless. But if you can only have the confidence, the determination, the commitment of the little hummingbird, 
you too can say I'm doing the best I can. Thank you very much. Can everyone hear me? No. Oh, yes? No? Can you hear me now? It's not staying on. Technician here, come up quickly because I'm having trouble with this. So, uh -huh. it keeps going on. Okay. No? No. Here we go. She's brilliant, isn't she? She fixed my microphone. <laughs> Welcome. I'm Laura Washington, and I'm a professor at DePaul University and a columnist from Chicago sometimes. And it's a pleasure and an honor for me to be here with you today. Welcome. Welcome to Chicago. You called yourself Professor Mathai, the Goodwill Ambassador to the Congo Forest. I think you're the Goodwill Ambassador to the world. And thanks for all you do. Thank you very much. We have about 15 minutes or so for questions, and we really appreciate all the, the time you've given to us. And the time you've been to, to Chicago, you've been here for a couple days now, I understand. You've been seeing our green city. We also call it the Windy City. Oh, it is. It. And we call it Chi Town, too. Okay. And you've been to, I understand, the Al Ravy School, where there's a very special place dedicated to you. You're wonderful. We had a really wonderful time with the uh, people, the community around, the children, the, the students. And it was really wonderful to see that they, they had broken concrete on either side of the main entrance. And they had created this wonderful little garden, two patches of gardens on either side and had decided to uh, dedicate it to, to me, even though they didn't know I was coming to Chicago. So when I heard that, uh, uh, you know, when I heard, they heard that I was coming, they decided to have me part of the dedication, which was wonderful. And then I noticed that on top of the, the main doors, it was written, Lucy Flower Technical High School. Mm -hmm. And I learned that uh, Lucy Flower was a relative of a good friend of mine from Chicago called Adele Simmons. So it was wonderful. Adele Simmons, uh, of the and I know she's here. Yeah, yeah and so I know she's here. She's here today, and it was great to know that that was her relative. So they have been at it really in the forefront. I got to know Adele Simmons some time back uh, when she was with the MacArthur Foundation, and also we were working on. Uh, the, our global, on, our, on our concept which we eventually called our global neighborhood. We were trying to say that we, the, the world is one, as we have been saying, and that we are all living in a neighborhood, and the climate change issue really makes it, that concept we are working on very real. And you also visit Trinity United Church of Christ, which is, I'm sure you know is the home church of Barack Obama. And, that was really one. Barack Obama has a, a, a special place in Chicago and also in your home country. I could, just, I could die and ask you, what's your take on Barack Obama and his presidential campaign? <laughs> <laughs> well, I can tell you that uh, when uh, uh, Barack Obama uh, came to Kenya the last time, he was a rock star. He, everybody loves him, we love him, we, we think that he's a wonderful person, of course we are wishing him uh, all the very best, and uh, we planted a tree with him at a very special uh, park in uh, Nairobi called Uru Park or Freedom Park, and this was significant to us because for those of us who worked for pro-democracy movement in Kenya, this was a sacred, a sacred place where we used to plant trees for, for some of our best colleagues who, who really died during that struggle. 
and so Barack Obama planted a tree there and we are very very grateful to him actually you have a very exciting time here in the United States of America because <clears throat> as you know you have Barack Obama, Barack Obama and we are all looking to see the best come out of his campaign you also have a woman mm -hmm. that's right Hillary Clinton and we are really excited sometimes we don't know which way to turn because if, <clears throat> the campaign is quite striking quite exciting i think it's a wonderful time in uh, in the united states of america at this time but at the back home i should say that we are just about to get a, to get into our own elections in fact i'm supposed to be campaigning back home but uh, our campaign is nothing compared no excitement. On on no excitement. <laughs> so we, we wish uh, Obama the very best. We hope that he will really make history. He, if he does, he will do it not only for him, but all the people of the world. It will be a victory for democracy and good governance. One of the things you didn't get a chance to talk about much is your feminism, which of course is one reason I'm sure you're excited about the fact that you had that kind of a choice, an African-American and a woman. Uh, I want to get right to the questions because we don't have much time and there were just dozens of them, but one that really jumped out for me is, especially because it relates to your background as a feminist, is from the audience, someone asked, as a woman in East Africa, what do you consider the greatest obstacle that you face in starting your green movement? Well, usually for any movement, the biggest problem is always the fact that you have a vision, you can see where you want to go, but so many other people don't. So a lot of people get on your way. And so you waste a lot of time so that uh, you don't get where you are trying to go because half of the time you are fighting useless battles with the people who don't understand your vision. And that to me is not only for me, anybody who, who has tried to bring about change confronts those kind of challenges. So for me, even to this day, that's the greatest challenge, trying to make people uh, understand where you're going and giving you support instead of wasting your time with uh, useless battles. Yeah. There's too many tough ones out there. Yes. Next question. They're all so good, and thank you, audience. We've got dozens of fabulous questions up here, and I'm sorry we won't be able to get to them all, but can there be a concerted effort in African countries to address the issue of recycling garbage? Well, garbage can be recycled if you have the technology, as I showed you what the Japanese are doing. Part of the problem that we were having with our plastic, the very thin plastic, is we don't have the technology to recycle that kind of plastic. And the companies we are saying that they can only recycle a, a, a much thicker type of plastic. So we said, okay, then produce the thicker plastics that you can recycle. But uh, at the moment, companies that are producing uh, garbage, uh, this kind of garbage, are interested in uh, business. They're interested in making money. They're not interested in what the pollution that they create in the, in the environment. And so it's a competition between business and uh, making, prof making profit and caring for the environment. But obviously if there were people who were able to come and invest in garbage, there is a lot of garbage that can be recycled and converted into useful resource because garbage is not garbage. Uh, garbage can also be converted into a resource. But you have got to have the capital and you have got to get the knowledge. Now for us, we don't have either. So quite often it's trying to see if you can get foreign companies that are willing to come and invest in these areas. This is a real profound one. Uh, and I'm sure it came from a young person. I know it did uh, from a high school student. What do you say to young men and women who say, but I'm just one person, what can I do? Be a hummingbird. <laughs> That's a wonderful prescription, wonderful story. Here's a question that really hits close to home for us. We are a green city, and right now we're in this huge debate about what to do with our parklands. 
what in your opinion should we do, should we press on in what what is your opinion on whether and how we should press on in our fight for open parklands from being overdeveloped how do we do that well i don't know but i think you are very lucky in that you have a mayor uh, who is very conscious about the environment the mayor of chicago is well known uh, he is quoted in many parts of the world as one mayor uh, and also the, the mayor, of uh, the governor of California, Schwarzenegger. Yeah, people who are very conscious about the environment and who are encouraging citizens to take care of their environment. But I think that one of the issues that is very, very important is education. That we need to invest in educating citizens to understand that it is very important to take care of their environment. And this is true whether you are rich or poor. In fact, when you are poor, you are even, it is even more important for you to take care of the environment because otherwise you are not only poor, but you are living in a filthy environment. And so it is very, very important for us to educate citizens so that citizens take part in taking care of the environment. And it's very important for all of us to, to understand that we have a role to play, that we can do something. Every time you pass a plastic bag or you pass garbage that has been dropped, just think, if everybody took care of their garbage, we wouldn't have any garbage. And, and we would have clean city. If everybody planted trees, I, told, I, I guess I didn't have time to say that every one of us needs 10 trees to take care of the carbon dioxide which we breathe out. Did I say that? If I didn't, I'm saying it now. We all need 10 trees to take care of the carbon dioxide we breathe out. And that's really sobering when you think about it. So anybody who has no tree that they can call their own is using other people's trees. <laughs> and should go out there and plant trees. And this is true of everybody. There is nobody who can say, I'm too poor to plant trees. You, anybody can plant a tree. So education and uh, taking, taking charge and embracing uh, what we would call citizen responsibility and not leave it all to the mayor or to the government. We can do a lot. And when we do things on our own, on our plots, on our, in our neighborhoods, we make it easier for the government, for the, for the center, for the, even for the city government to do what we cannot do. But if we leave it all to them, obviously they get overwhelmed. So let's all be on board and let's all do what we can. Whether you are old or young or a child, poor or rich, you can do something. Be a hummingbird in your community. This is a tough one. Um, it, it's, there's so many competing priorities in this troubled world we're living in. Can we make a real commitment to saving nature and ourselves before we address social and racial injustice globally? Can we save nature before, before we take on, or without taking on, racial and social injustice? Now one of the reasons why the Norwegian Nobel Committee connected justice, or rather good governance, which includes justice and fairness, and sustainable management of resources, which includes equitable distribution, and peace is the fact that the three are interrelated. And, you, and as I said, with the traditional stool, you cannot say that you'll take care of one leg, and when, when you have taken care of, uh, let us say you take care of two legs, and when you have dealt with those, then you'll worry about the others. You have to craft all three legs and the seat together. You have to work for sustainable management of resources, equitable distribution. You have to work for good governance, respect for human rights. You have to work for peace, all at the same time. You cannot afford to say, I'm going to first seek justice, and only then will I worry about the environment, because you may never get there. You have to work for them all at the same time. And we, that's the challenge that the Norwegian Nobel Committee was bringing to us that we need to rethink, we need to shift our mindset so that we can understand that the environment needs us. Now here we are, today is Sunday, and we are in a church. So I dare say 
that in a light touch, when God created the earth, he first created everything, and then towards the very end, he created the human species. Now, when you think about it, if you read the, the book of Genesis, you will see that if God had not created, if God had created man first, man would have died because there would have been nothing to sustain him. Say God created you on Monday. You would have been dead on Tuesday. You read the Bible. If you read the Bible, you will see very clearly that there is a lot of wisdom in the chronology of what was created. If we, the human species, disappeared from this planet, there are many species who would say, thank God. <laughs> but we, we, if we, if we didn't have the other species, we could not survive on this planet. It's we who need them rather than the reverse. So we need, need to look at them with a lot of respect and with a lot of gratitude. We are most grateful for you and for you spending this time with us. I know you have to catch a plane, so unfortunately we're going to have to end the program now, but I want to thank you on behalf of the sponsors for your wisdom, your passion, your courage, and thank you for all that you do for the world. One card and five.